Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Ken Exner. Uh, I manage developer tools for Amazon. And this is developer tools on AWS. Um, a quick introduction. Uh, so I actually have two roles at Amazon. I'm responsible for external developer tools and internal developer tools. Uh, on the external side, uh, this includes uh, all the uh, services and tools that we have for AWS developers, including the SDKs and command line tools, the IDE toolkits, uh, as well as some of our managed services for helping you with the software development lifecycle, uh, including the code products and Cloud9, Elastic Beanstalk, X-Ray, and other products. Um, but as I said, I'm also responsible for developer tools inside of Amazon. Uh, and this is known as builder tools. Uh, Amazon likes to refer to our developers and all our employees as builders. Uh, so of course, inside of Amazon, developer tools is builder tools. Um, so in this role, I get to talk to lots of customers. Uh, not only internal, but external, across a wide array, array of different uh, industries and businesses, uh, large and small. Uh, companies like Salesforce and, and T-Mobile and uh, Edmonds and Bristol-Myers Squibb, but also all the developers across all of Amazon, tens of thousands of developers inside of Amazon across all the different businesses. Uh, so I'm responsible for making sure that the developers are productive and helping them manage the software development lifecycle and helping them um, push out software to production. So in this role, I often get asked to explain what software development looks like inside of Amazon. What are our processes like? What are our tools like? Uh, what are our architectural best practices? How do we build resiliency into distributed systems? How do we approach DevOps? How do we maintain speed despite our, our size? Uh, how do we manage operations and other questions? Uh, so this is one of the reasons that we launched uh, this morning the Amazon Builders Library. Uh, in Werner's keynote this morning, he talked about how we're starting to publish a lot of the Amazon best practices in this new website that you can find uh, up today that's going to feature a number of different articles about things that Amazon has learned about developing at Amazon size and things that we've learned over the last 20 years about best practices for delivering uh, software to the cloud. Uh, this includes architectural best practices. This includes information about our approach to DevOps and how we release software. Um, these are things that we have learned. We're not trying to be prescriptive. Um, some of these may be applicable to you or not, but we keep getting asked how we do things and what practices we follow. So we wanted to start sharing some of that information with you. Uh, so today, there's 15 different articles, um, including things about software delivery and architectural best practices that you can look and find today. We're going to keep updating this and providing new articles. We have a, a bunch of articles planned for next year. So pay attention to the site. We're going to start publishing Amazon's best practices around architecture and software delivery. All right, so continuing this theme of wanting to be a little bit more transparent and, and share our experience and what we have learned, in this talk, I'm going to go over four sections. And in each of the sections, I'm going to begin by talking about Amazon's approach. So I'm going to talk about Amazon's approach to the dev test cycle, Amazon's approach to the code review process. Uh, I'm going to talk about CICD and what Amazon does. And in each of these sections, I'm going to then bridge to the external tools and talk about how, if you want to, you can start doing some of these same things uh, with our external developer tools. So talking about what we do and then bridging to the external tools. Uh, I'm also going to talk about modern application architecture. Uh, one of the things that we've witnessed over the last 10 years is Amazon and a bunch of other companies are starting to go from monolithic architectures to end-tier architectures to what we call this new modern architecture which is composed of different microservices and serverless functions and managed services. Things that used to be bound to one server are now in this new distributed architecture, 
with lots of different pieces, kind of this constellation of microservices, functions, and managed services. And one of the challenges we have is while that's a better operational model, there's all kinds of advantages to doing it, you end up having more complexity with all these different pieces. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about what developer tools can do to help rein in that complexity and make sure that you're not trading off uh, operational uh, benefits for, for ease of use. So try to have it all. Uh, and then finally, I'm gonna look ahead to what's coming up next with developer tools. Uh, uh, everyone always wants to know, where are we going? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna re reveal, at least at a high level, some of our thoughts about where we're going and share with you a little bit about the future. All right, uh, so let's first start with the dev test cycle and code review. Um, but first, I wanna just quickly go over the, the typical uh, application lifecycle at Amazon. Uh, this isn't too dissimilar to what most companies follow. Uh, there's a dev test cycle followed by a code review process, followed by pre-production testing, followed by production release. And I'm gonna go into a little bit of detail about all of this. Um, this isn't too unique. This is what a lot of companies follow. What is unique about Amazon is we do two things that are a little bit different. One, we love automation. Um, absolutely love automation. Uh, you know, we're the people who put robots in our fulfillment centers and try to automate the grocery store. We love automation. It, it, it infects everything that we do, including the software release process. Uh, not only the, the software release process, but the code review process, the dev test cycle. Every part of this, we try to figure out where can we apply automation. The second thing that we do that is a little bit unique is um, we try to make sure that any kind of safety or check that we put into the process, we do it in multiple locations. We have a belts and suspenders approach. We wanna make sure that if we have synthetic monitoring in production, that we also do that synthetic monitoring in pre-production. That if we're doing some kind of uh, code scanning uh, as part of the build, we also do that earlier in the process. Um, now, this isn't too dissimilar to the entire idea of shift left. Um, and if you uh, are familiar with um, the testing space, there's this idea of shift left where you're trying to figure out if you can do things in an earlier part of the process. So in traditional testing, you'd look at something uh, that you'd find as part of acceptance testing and ask yourself, can you have found that as part of integration testing? If you could find that in part of integration testing, could you have found that earlier as part of a component level or even unit level testing? Um, we apply the same philosophy to the entire software delivery process. What can we do to find problems earlier? And the reason this is important is that not only are you helping find problems earlier that, so you uh, have less chance of impacting customers, but you're also gonna be more productive. If you can find those same issues as part of the dev test cycle or as part of code review, you're not gonna have to go through all that, uh, the entire process and start over again. So to, to illustrate this, a typical uh, release at Amazon is gonna begin with sort of a dev test cycle where you're gonna pull an issue um, to work on, you're gonna iterate on that locally, uh, you're gonna you know, run it, test it, and you're gonna have, after a while you're gonna have something you're ready to, to commit. And then you're gonna go through a code review process. Uh, and here you're gonna build that software and then you know, sh uh, share it with a peer to have that peer review it, maybe have some automated code review processes, iterate back and forth until you have something that's ready to ship, and then you're gonna go out to testing, and this is gonna go through a lot of automated testing. Uh, after a while it's ready to release to production, you're gonna go through a long, lengthy process to release this across the globe to all the different regions. I'll come back and explain this in detail. But the thing you might notice is if you find a problem now in production, not only are you impact, impacting customers, but you're having to go all the way back to the beginning to start over again. So anything we can do earlier in the process is gonna have a big impact on productivity because it's gonna keep you from wasting those cycles. 
Uh, one of the first times we recognized this inside of Amazon was about six, seven years ago, where we, on the retail side, we were having problems with uh, internationalization and globalization. Uh, a developer would forget to use UTF-8 or would improperly format it some text. Uh, and then we would have a problem that we would catch in pre-production testing or maybe later in production. And we started asking ourselves, could we do something in terms of code scanning to find this earlier? And what we ended up doing is building a system called Globalizer, uh, which in, uh, injects this kind of testing, in, uh, this kind of scanning into the code review process. Uh, so when a developer submits something for a code review, before it goes out to a peer, the very first thing it does is run some uh, code scanning to find internationalization problems. And this is important because that's when a developer is receptive to feedback early in the process. And you can give them all this information, and it's going to save them time from finding that later on in the process. So we love this idea of shift left. We apply it to the entire software development lifecycle. All right, let's dive a little bit deeper, deeper into the dev test cycle. Uh, now, at Amazon, uh, this was one of the first things that were uh, pretty significantly transformed by the cloud. Uh, 10, 11 years ago, uh, we decided to start using EC2 as our desktops. We used to have physical hardware under our desks, but uh, EC2 came out, and we started asking ourselves, why can't we just use EC2 uh, for our developer workstations? Uh, and we did, and we built this system called Cloud Desktop, uh, which allowed us to essentially stop managing and curating a piece of hardware under our desk and start using EC2 instead, uh, and start treating it as something disposable, something ephemeral, something that we could just spin up when we needed it. Uh, if it, we didn't have enough compute, we'd spin up a larger instance. We tied this together with our pipelining system, and what it allowed us to do is quickly spin up uh, dev environments to work on and then tear them down. And work on a new project, spin up a dev environment, and then tear it down. Became a lot more productive this way than having to manage and get software onto a physical piece of hardware. Uh, and the developers at Amazon use this um, either as an entire self-contained uh, Linux workstation or together with their laptops, or more recently, together with Cloud9. Uh, Cloud9 is uh, a web-based IDE that we launched here at reInvent a couple years ago. Um, and what the developers at Amazon do is attach this to an EC2 instance, their, their cloud desktop. Uh, and what they're able to do is have an entirely cloud-based development experience. It's a full, it's a full uh, complete IDE uh, with everything you'd expect from an IDE. Um, but it also has collaboration features. And this is pretty cool because you're allowed to uh, collaborate with your, your peers on code. You're, you're able to do pair programming. Um, so that's been, that's been pretty cool for, for Amazon developers. But we also recognize that IDEs are a very personal choice. Uh, so we want to make sure, both internally and externally, that we support developers where they are. Uh, so we have a wide range of uh, IDE toolkits that we support. Uh, we have support today for PyCharm and IntelliJ and VS Code and Visual Studio. Uh, last week, we extended this uh, with our partnership with JetBrains to include WebStorm and Rider for Node.js and .NET development. Uh, so if you use any of these IDEs, we have plugins that help you with AWS-based development, help you uh, develop serverless applications and container-based applications uh, using the IDEs that you want to use. Um, also last week, we uh, announced a new system called Cloud Debugging uh, for our IDE toolkits. I'm super excited about this, because what it allows us to do is use a local IDE, but rather than have the dev environment or the, the container be local in that IDE, you can use it with a cloud-based uh, dev environment. So you can separate out the, the development experience from what you're actually developing against. 
Uh, so you're able to have a very local feeling experience, but you're debugging with the cloud. Why is this important? Um, over, the last, over the last 10 years, uh, since we started moving our workloads to the cloud, what I've been seeing developers try to do is pull everything in the cloud into their laptop. That may have worked when you're, you know, trying, to, uh, when you're trying to work on a, sim a single server or a single container, but as you start moving towards this modern application architecture that has multiple services, uh, multiple uh, microservices, multiple uh, functions and for Lambda, trying to pull all of that down into a laptop is a losing game. Um, we've been trying to do this with mock services, local implementations of S3 and DynamoDB, but as this becomes more distributed, it becomes harder and harder to even imagine trying to do this. Why even try? Just use the cloud. The problem is, when you try to do this, uh, when people have tried to do this, for example, with container-based applications, when they try to connect to a container-based application in the cloud with traditional IDE tools, um, they have to go through this lengthy setup process. They have to register that container. They have to deploy that container. Uh, and then, uh, essentially, the dev test cycle becomes minutes long. Then you have to repeat that every single time you want to make a change. And quickly, the entire dev test experience becomes half an hour, an hour, two hours, when it should have just been minutes because of, because of all that configuration that you need to do. Um, what we've done with cloud debugging in the toolkits uh, is reduce this down to minutes so that all you have to do is uh, uh, enable the, uh, the cloud debugging, and then you can set a breakpoint and debug. And then after that, set a breakpoint and then debug again and it just becomes instantaneous. What we're actually doing is establishing an, uh, a, a systems manager connection with that container, with an agent running in a sidecar, so you don't have to open up any ports, and we're communicating directly with that container via systems manager. Um, and he, rather than continue talking about it, I'd rather invite one of the engineers from the team uh, to give you a demo. So uh, please welcome Kyle Thompson, senior software engineer from DevTools. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. So what we're going to do by way of demo today is look at a sample application. So this is an application you may have seen on some of the AWS documentation called Mythical Misfits. And it's a container-based um, Fargate service that sits behind a network load balancer, and it talks to, to DynamoDB. It's a simple website for um, showing these mythical creatures and being able to filter by their properties. But we've got a bug in it, and the filtration isn't working. So what we're going to use is ECS Cloud Debugging to try and find out what's going on here. So I'm going to jump across into my IDE. I have the AWS Toolkit configured in JetBrains. And I'm going to navigate to the service. I'm going to right click on it. And I'm going to click Enable Cloud Debug on the service that's running in the cloud. From there, I need to pick a role that we use uh, to do the debugging. As Ken mentioned, we use Systems Manager. So we need um, an additional permission. And that role needs to have that. Then I'm going to hit OK. Now what's going to happen is we're going to enable cloud debugging for this service, which effectively involves uh, making a replica of it, shutting down the old version of the service or the original version of the service, and adding a version that has the same task definition as your original one, but with our additional sidecar container that allows us to connect to Systems Manager. So that takes a couple of minutes. We kind of sped up through there, uh, depending on you know, whether you've got a network load balancer uh, so now that we're connected, um, I'm going to go into my application. I'm going to set a breakpoint where I think the issue might be. And I'm going to set that breakpoint. 
and then I'm going to right click on the debug version of the service and hit debug. This pops me into a run configuration. This is a typical um, JetBrains uh, pattern if you've used any of the JetBrains IDEs before. And in here, I need to configure how I'm going to get the application that's running from my local machine, build it, and push it up into that running container. So I've configured some details there, and I'm going to hit debug. Now what's going to happen is the IDE is going to build that locally on my machine. It's going to take those artifacts, push them up to the running container. We don't have to provision a new container. It, it works within the existing container. And then it's going to restart the application and stream the logs back. So at this point, I've pushed code from my local machine with one click up into an ECS container. I haven't had to tag any uh, Docker images or push them up to a registry. So I'm going to jump back across to the browser now, and we're going to apply a filter and see if our debug, uh, or if our breakpoint gets hit. So here we go, and we see the breakpoint gets hit there. So this is a, a breakpoint that's running in ECS in a Fargate container, and it's a full fidelity debug session at this point. So I can do things like step over, step through. Um, we're going to see we're going to get down to the point where we make our DynamoDB call, and we're going to get an exception thrown here. So again, the IDE, this is a traditional, regular debugging process as if you were debugging locally or a remote app uh, connecting to a remote port. And I can dive into the details here. So what I'm going to do is also look at the logs of the server. So again, this is live logs that get streamed back to my IDE. And I can see that my Dynamo exception here is a problem with an index. So we're trying to hit an index in Dynamo that doesn't exist. So let's try and figure out what's going on there. So we're going to go back to the code where uh, that gets generated. And again, because this is a full functioning debug session, I can hover over variables. I can see the contents. And it looks like something's a bit mixed up here. Those, those properties are the wrong way around. So we're going to go back to the call site. And yep, we've flipped the variables there. So we're going to switch those back around. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit the debug button again once I've made that update. So this is my, my bug fix. And the debug button is going to push that back up again and restart the application. And now we see that the filter is working, and I've fixed the bug. So at that point, we'd go into the code commit um, code review cycle. So I'll, I'll hand it back to Ken, but that, that's uh, cloud debugging in the AWS toolkits for JetBrains. Cool. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. So pretty cool. You get a high-fidelity dev environment that you can, uh, you can uh, debug without having to pull down the entire cloud into your laptop. Uh, all right. Um, let's move next to the code review or pull request workflow. Uh, I started talking about this a little bit earlier when I talked about what Amazon does uh, in terms of uh, injecting additional uh, code scanning as part of the code review process. Um, we started with uh, internationalization and globalization, but we started expanding that to a whole host of different things uh, inside of Amazon. Uh, the very next thing we did is we started um, providing feedback on code coverage as part of the code review process, so letting people know what their unit test coverage was. Uh, and this was important because we also had the ability to block releases a little bit later in the release process if it didn't have uh, a certain level of code coverage. So I could set policies for my team based on code coverage uh, but they'd get super frustrated if they got through the release process and got blocked when they couldn't have, we could have told them earlier that you know, they didn't have 70% code coverage, for example. Uh, so we started doing that. We started doing other kinds of static analysis as part of the code review process, giving them information uh, about best practices, about security findings, 
uh, our security org started doing all kinds of different types of uh, code scanning as part of the code review process. And the process now is you, you, you submit something for a code review and you get a, you get a code review decorated with all this information automatically um, that you know, covers best practices, security findings, and other things. Uh, and then you go and get peer feedback. Uh, every, every code uh, review at Amazon, uh, every um, uh, release at Amazon has to have at least one code review, uh, but teams can set up other rules. Maybe they want to have two people review the code pro uh, the co do the code review, or have one person from the security team uh, also do the code review. Um, so we have a lot of these custom rules built around the code review process that teams can customize. Um, uh, talk about a couple of things that we've done on the external tools that are similar. Uh, last week, we announced uh, approval rules for code commit. Uh, so you can now set up some of these custom rules uh, for your pull request workflow. Uh, so if you, have, um, if you want to set up rules that someone has to, or two people have to do a code review or something like that, you can set up these custom rules. Uh, or if you use some automated systems, uh, like SonarCube, for example, you can set up rules that a certain threshold uh, of errors has to be met uh, by these uh, third-party tools in order for it to merge that and, and, and commit that, uh, that code. So you can set up custom uh, rules for not only people, but also automated systems. Um, and of course, uh, two days ago in Andy's keynote, we launched Code, uh, code Guru. Um, and this is a new uh, managed service that uses uh, ML and a, uh, AI techniques, as well as some static rules, uh, to help you with the code quality uh, and uh, performance of your applications. Um, there's actually two parts to uh, Amazon Code Guru. There's the code review part, and then there's the profiler part. And I'll talk about each. Uh, first, Code Guru Reviewer. Um, this helps you with some of the automated code review stuff that we've, we've learned inside of Amazon. Uh, so we, we, we're essentially trying to uh, capture a lot of the best practices that we've had uh, in terms of finding issues with uh, concurrency or finding uh, problems with uh, AWS best practices, or maybe you're not handling sensitive data correctly, uh, or maybe you have unsanitized inputs. So these kind of standard uh, issues that we see repeatedly across these code reviews, uh, trying to provide that as part of the code review process through an automated system. Not only do we point these problems out, we show you how to remediate them. We show you what the, what, how, to, how to fix these issues. So if you're, if you're violating an AWS best practice, we show you how to fix it. Um, the second part of CodeGuru is the profiler part. Uh, and this is, um, in, many, in many, ways, many ways, a standard profiling tool. It has all flame graphs and everything else you'd expect from a profiling tool, but in a managed service. But what's different is we use AI and ML to also help you process that information and help you figure out where the performance bottlenecks are and then how to fix it. So we, we show you where your performance bottlenecks are in your application and then show you how to remediate that. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna move on now to uh, the CI-CD process and talk a little bit about what Amazon does uh, and then talk about how you can follow many of these same practices yourself. Um, but I'd like to begin this story um, back in 2001 because I think it helps to understand Amazon's 20-year journey to understand how we ended up where we are today. Um, back in 2001, uh, Amazon was just a retailer, and we had basically a monolithic architecture. It was a big, um, uh, it was Perl Mason on top of C++, uh, C++ on top of an Oracle database. It was this big monolithic architecture. Uh, and we had more of a monolithic architecture in terms of our team structure as well. So we had a big development team, uh, a big operations team, that operations team had release engineers, had manual QA. It was more of a traditional functional hierarchy. 
Um, what we, we started to have problems with is we used to employ a release train model. Uh, so every Friday, you get on the release train, and hopefully that release would go out that Friday, and we'd you know, bunch together a bunch of uh, changes to the retail site, manually QA it, try to ship it out through this release train. But as we started getting bigger, that, that release got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and invariably, you'd have a problem, and you'd end up aborting that release, and the release train wouldn't go out that week. And maybe you'd go out the next week. Started getting, it started getting worse and worse, and it got to a point where, where months would pass, and we hadn't made any changes to the retail site because the release train was just getting huge. And we're trying to deploy this huge monolithic uh, uh, deployable. What we realized that we is we, we needed to decompose for agility. We needed to decompose not only the architecture, but our organizational structure. Uh, and this led us to the idea of two pizza teams, that we wanted to have small teams owning small services, owning their own deployment, owning their own operations. Uh, and this took us down the path of DevOps, essentially, where we'd have these teams own their development and their operations. Um, the idea of two pizza teams came from Jeff. He, he, he wanted these teams to be small enough that you could feed them with two pizzas. That was the running joke. Um, but in, in the end, it wasn't the size that mattered so much as the fact that they had full accountability. They owned everything. They owned um, their backlog. They owned their customer uh, contacts. They owned, um, they owned testing, operations, development, everything. Uh, and this essentially got us to a point where we started to look like a startup again, but not just one startup, hundreds, thousands of startups inside of Amazon. Uh, and when people ask me, like, what is our, the secret of our agility? It's that we move as if we're 2,000, 3,000 different startups. We deliberately organize it that way. One of the problems that we then had, though, is we had this uh, monolithic uh, development team that we decomposed into two pizza teams. We had this monolithic architecture that we decomposed into a bunch of services. We still had to solve this problem of how to manage the release process, because we couldn't rely on this, this release uh, train model anymore from the centralized service. So what we ended up doing is providing self-service tools that allowed every team to automate their end-to-end -end process. Uh, and that's how my team, the Builder Tools team, was born inside of Amazon, was to essentially automate this entire process end-to-end. -end. Uh, we wanted to make sure that teams weren't inventing their own unique ways of deploying software. We wanted to provide standardized tools for how they would do this and automate that as much as possible to take the guesswork out of it so that they could just sort of trust the tools and the tools would follow the best practice. All right, so what does the release process actually look like inside of Amazon? I'm gonna actually go into a little bit more detail now about what a typical pi pipeline looks like inside of Amazon and reveal a little bit more than we have in the past. Every service has its own pipeline. Um, and once you've gone through the code review process, what you're then gonna do is merge that in and the, you're gonna start with the source code system and it's gonna then sh uh, ship that out to a build system. And that build system is gonna compile that, it's gonna run unit tests, it's gonna do a bunch of static analysis. And then out, outside, out of that process, you're gonna have a deployable artifact. That deployable artifact is then ready to be deployed, but it's not gonna go to production yet. It's of course gonna go to a pre-production uh, uh, stage. Um, we start first with running automated tests against what we'll call an alpha stage, where we're just trying to test that one service in pre-production and we'll have a bunch of automated tests that we run against that. We then ship it off to an integration testing environment because typically that service is not 
uh, doesn't work in isolation. Typically, that service is going to work with other, uh, other dependencies or other services it needs to call, and that call it. Uh, so you're going to have some kind of integration environment. And you're going to run a bunch of automated tests. You're going to run automated integration tests. Typically, teams also want to run automated load performance tests here, too. Because you want to make sure that the performance and, and latency, none of that uh, regresses as well. So you're going to run a bunch of automated performance and load testing. Uh, and if it's a UI-based service, you're going to run a bunch of automated browser or UI tests. But then you're not done yet. Because what we want to make sure is that when we deploy this to production, it's going to work with all the other services in production. So we typically have yet another pre-production stage where we test that thing in pre-production against all its other dependencies and all the other uh, things that call it that are in production. So while this service is in pre-production, everything it, everything it calls, everything that calls it is in production. And then we run a bunch more, a bunch more uh, automated tests. Uh, and if we have synthetic monitoring uh, against production, which most teams do, we'll also run synthetic monitoring here uh, and other types of automated testing. Um, we've gotten very good at developing automated testing inside of Amazon. We have systems for, for, for producing a lot of these automated tests from the same test definitions. Uh, we love automated tests, and we try to make sure that teams do as much automated testing as possible. At that point, you're ready to deploy to production. But you're not going to deploy straight out to a region. You're going to try to reduce the blast radius of that change, because as good as your pre-production testing is, you can always miss something. So we try to limit the blast radius to a small unit as possible. So we don't deploy this to an entire region. We'll start with one AZ. And we don't just start with one AZ. We start with one server in one AZ. Um, or if it's a, a serverless application or a container-based application, we'll, we'll dial this up to 1%. So we'll, we'll deploy this to 1% of the capacity in that one AZ. Uh, and we'll let it bake there for some period of time. Um, or uh, pa pass some transactional tests. So, like, we'll, we'll want to make sure that that code that's being introduced has been tickled in production and, and it passes a bunch of transactional tests. And after we have proved that that, uh, that uh, new um, revision isn't going to impact customers, then we slowly roll that out across the rest of that AZ, or we turn up the, the dial and uh, turn it to 100% for that AZ. Uh, now, we employ a bunch of different deployment techniques inside of Amazon. We use AB deployments. We use in-place deployments, where we pull a, a server out of the load balancer, update it, put it back in. There's a bunch of these different techniques. But the thing that's important to us is that we do this fractional deployment, that we slowly dial this up, that we only go to one box or 1% and then fractionally increase it. And then once we've done that, we'll repeat that in the next AZ. And then after we've done that, go to the final AZ, or if there's four AZ, AZs, go to the four AZs. Uh, as part of this process, one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're looking at monitoring um, for uh, that one. We segment the monitoring based on the capacity it's being uh, deployed to. So if we, do, if we segment this to 1%, we look at the monitoring for that 1%. And we look at traditional resource-level monitoring, application-level monitoring, but also synthetic monitoring. We love synthetic monitoring. Uh, which is basically trying to emulate uh, user traffic by having uh, scripted uh, flows that go through your application that simulate user traffic. So once we've done that, we then repeat that process in the next region. And then after we've gotten comfortable that we haven't impacted any customers, we then go to a couple regions and start increasing these waves uh, until we've globally deployed that software. Um, the entire release process can take a bit of time. 
We want to um, make sure the dev test cycle is as fast as possible, but this release process for you know, once, you've, uh, once you've built your software and released it, that can take a bit of time because we're deliberately trying to be very pessimistic. It's a very pessimistic process. It's trying to find reasons to throw that deployment out. Uh, whether it's you know, test failing or metrics telling you something's wrong with this, we're looking for any reason to throw this deployment out. And we employ a lot of different techniques. We, we look at trace data, we look at metrics data, we look at the testing. Uh, recently, we've started using anomaly detection uh, as part of this process too, where we apply AL and ML, uh, ML and AI techniques to look for anomalies in the metrics. Um, so maybe uh, you know, using trace data, for example, we would detect that you're impacting uh, another service uh, that is upstream from you and use that as a way to uh, detect that there's an anomaly as part of that deployment and then roll it back to the, its last known good state and then send it off to the developers to, to, re, to fix and, and ship off again. Uh, but it's a very pessimistic process that is looking for any reason uh, to throw something out. At the end of this process, you have a good quality release. We apply this not only to application code, we also apply this to every other change that we do. Uh, we use infrastructure as code religiously inside of Amazon, so we use uh, infrastructure co as code through this pipeline as well. Uh, OS patching goes through a pipeline. Configuration changes goes through a pipeline. Anything we change goes through a pipeline because you want, it to be, you want those same che uh, checks and safeties to be applied with everything that you're doing, anything that you're changing. Um, feature flags. We use feature flags for any UI changes. Um, we wrap code in a feature flag so that when you deploy it, you can, you can turn on the feature uh, flag and then it gets exposed. The process of flipping that feature flag, that configuration change, goes through a pipeline as well. Everything goes through a pipeline. The other thing that we do is we use pipeline blockers a lot. Uh, now, pipeline blockers uh, can be things as simple as time windows, like maybe a team uh, wants to block deployments during a weekend, or they want to deploy, uh, want to block um, deployments during a holiday. Um, but we also use it for policy. Uh, and this is an important thing for Amazon. Uh, we use policies um, against the pipeline to enforce best practices and, enforce, and get sort of governance and, and security uh, requirements met. Uh, we can look at the shape and contents of everything going through a pipeline, and we can, we can block it if, uh, uh, if uh, the teams deviate from those best practices. Uh, and we can set these policies at every level of the organization. Uh, so for example, I, um, one of the real ones is I can set a policy for my team that you have to have at least 70% code coverage uh, for unit tests. Uh, if you don't have 70% code coverage for any revision, uh, that, that gets blocked. Um, but you can also set these policies uh, at the entire org level. So Andy Jassy has policies for all of AWS. Uh, he has a policy, for example, that you cannot deploy to all regions at once. If you try to change your pipeline to, uh, to deploy to all regions at once, it's gonna block the pipeline. Uh, so we, we use this as a way to make sure that uh, the teams are following best practices and we're able to ensure governance and, and best practices across all these distributed two pizza teams. All right, so to summarize, um, we decompose for agility, uh, both the architecture and our teams. Uh, we want to automate everything. Um, we use standardized tools and, and try to drive everything through those tools, whether it's application code changes uh, or infrastructure as code changes. 
Um, and wherever possible, we try to shift left and, and apply these same uh, safeties earlier in the process so that we can be more productive and find those problems earlier in the, de in the development process. All right, so turning now to AWS Developer Tools. Um, we've made a lot of these capabilities possible uh, in AWS Developer Tools and are starting to use many of these same tools ourselves inside of Amazon. Uh, Code Pipeline is a pipelining tool that allows you to model the end-to-end -end, uh, release process. Uh, a lot of what I described earlier can be modeled in Code Pipeline. Uh, we have Cloud9 and the AWS Toolkits for helping you with the authoring and debugging experience. Uh, AWS Code Commit is our source code management system. Uh, AWS Code Build is a fully managed build service that you can use for building and testing software. Uh, Code Deploy for doing uh, various deployment strategies, including uh, in-place and blue-green deployments. Uh, X-Ray and CloudWatch for metrics and tracing. And of course, Code Guru most recently to help you with some of the automated processes of code review and profiling. Um, a couple of things I want to call out that we've launched recently. Uh, for AWS Code Build, uh, we launched new larger instance sizes uh, so that you have a, a greater array of choices in terms of the instances you want to run as part of the, as part of the build. Uh, we also now support ARM. Uh, so if you are trying to build an ARM-based application, uh, code, uh, code Build now supports ARM-based builds. Uh, we launched support for AWS Secrets Manager so that you can manage your credentials and secrets uh, in AWS Secrets Manager as part of the build process. Uh, we now have the ability to export environment variables. So if you're passing environment variables through your pipeline, uh, the build and CI process now supports environment variables. Uh, and the last one is probably one of the things that we've, we've been asked for the most, which is test reporting. Um, CodeBuild supports uh, a bunch of standard uh, unit testing frameworks like JUnit. And we now support um, a, a UI uh, for pulling that information out of your logs so that you can see the results of your, of your unit testing. Uh, so we display uh, a nice pretty view that shows you which tests are passing and failing, and also show you a history of all your tests. Uh, Code Pipeline also now supports environment variables so that you can pass environment, vari environment variables from CI to CD. Um, this summer, we launched AWS Chatbot um, and integrated this together with our tools. Um, this is something we've been seeing a lot of customers do, embracing this notion of chat ops, where you're using tools like Slack to not only communicate with other developers, but wanting to communicate with tools. Uh, so we launched AWS Chatbot so that you could communicate with AWS services. Uh, initially, it was about sending events and alarms down to your Slack channel, so you could subscribe um, to CloudWatch events or uh, get metrics sent down to your uh, Slack channel. But we recently also announced run commands uh, so that you can use CLI commands in your Slack channel uh, to run commands uh, against AWS services. So you can request uh, information from CloudWatch, for example. Uh, speaking of notifications, we also recently launched uh, a new notification hub for the AWS code suite. Previously, you had to configure all the different event information separately. So if you wanted to get uh, notified of a, of a build failure or of a deployment failure, you'd have to configure each of these separately for each region. But you now have a unified experience for configuring uh, your different event information. So you can set up um, uh, the ability to notify you via uh, Slack or notify you uh, via email of any, any of the different event types within the code suite. All right, let's move on to the third section and talk about modern architectures. 
Uh, I set this up earlier explaining how uh, we've seen over the last 10 years a movement from monolithic architectures to interior architectures to now this new modern uh, architecture that's composed of these distributed pieces uh, of microservices and serverless functions and managed services. And what I described earlier is sort of the accidental complexity that we get from this, because we have more, more pieces that we need to manage. Uh, and while this is a better operational model, this is a more efficient way to run software, we don't want the complexity of this new distributed architecture keeping us from, from using this. So this is a rule, this is, a, this is something that developer tools can help with. One of the ways we've been dealing with this inside of Amazon is by using infrastructure as code. Uh, we use infrastructure as code as a way to manage uh, and reason about all the different pieces as part of this distributed architecture. Uh, but the problem we had internally is that uh, if we're using CloudFormation, uh, JSON, or YAML, it was fairly low level. Uh, what developers inside of Amazon wanted was a higher level abstraction for dealing with infrastructure as code, and preferably, preferably being able to use it in the language they wanted to. Um, so we developed something called the CDK, the Cloud Development Kit. Uh, initially, this was for us, but we started to realize that this is probably gonna be useful to AWS customers as well. So we open sourced it, put it up on GitHub, and we're maintaining this as an open source project that can work with AWS or anywhere else. Um, but what it does, a couple of things. Uh, it gives you an, uh, language bindings in various uh, languages so that you can author CloudFormation and other artifacts in the language you wanna use. Uh, so it supports various imperative languages like Java and JavaScript and TypeScript uh, and C-sharp and Python. Our goal is to essentially support every language where AWS has an SDK so that you can author infrastructure as code in the language you want to use. Um, because we also support these languages, it also means you can use all the capabilities of those languages. So you can uh, model things as objects, you can have inheritance, you can have loops and if statements. Anything you can do in an imperative language you can do now with infrastructure as code. The other thing that I think is important about uh, the CDK is that we have this notion of a construct. And what a construct is, is it's a higher level of abstraction uh, that lets you uh, get an opinionated implementation of a resource. So rather than giving you just sort of a low level uh, AWS resource and presenting that in, in, your, um, in your framework, we're presenting you with a higher level construct which is an opinionated implementation of that. Uh, so if you've tried to implement um, a VPC, for example, in CloudFormation, it's literally about a thousand lines of JSON or YAML because there are so many different options available. But we can reduce that to just a, a couple of lines of uh, a snippet of JavaScript or a snippet of, of Java by giving you an opinionated implementation of that. So we have a bunch of these constructs that we make available that we vend as part of a library uh, of constructs, but people can also customize them and share them themselves and create their own constructs, which are these higher level abstractions for how to, how to use AWS uh, services. On top of these constructs, we also have entire patterns that can be modeled as a construct. So not only a higher level implementation of a resource, but an entire architectural pattern. Uh, so say for example, you wanna have a, a PubSub architectural pattern that uses SNS and SQS. We provide that architectural pattern as a construct. Another construct we've been working on is a CICD construct. Um, after all, the entire CICD process is just a bunch of AWS resources that you can model as a construct. So we're giving you an opinionated way to use and set up CICD through the CDK uh, using constructs on top of these uh, low-level resources. Uh, so you can check this out on GitHub today and give us feedback, but we're wanting to give you the ability to have an entire CICD 
uh, pipeline set up in a best, best, practice, best practice way automatically uh, in the CDK. Once we get things into these languages, we then want to take them into the IDEs. Uh, and we're starting to do this with our toolkits. Uh, we launched recently uh, a CDK Explorer uh, so that you can have a tree view of all these constructs uh, in your IDE, um, but also uh, inline help and uh, uh, syntactic help and autocomplete, things that help you develop and, and do code construction in the IDE. And I'm super excited about doing more in the IDE to help you uh, develop AWS applications on top of the CDK. Uh, for customers that don't want to begin with the IDE, uh, we also recently launched um, the ability to set up a CI-CD pipeline as part of the Lambda console. So if you go to the Lambda console and you want to set up a serverless application, uh, you just point us at your repository and we'll set up the entire CI-CD pipeline for you automatically within a minute. Uh, so you get a best practice uh, CI-CD pipeline automatically set up for you within the Lambda console. Uh, all right. Uh, so in the final few minutes, uh, I want to look ahead and talk about where we're going to be going uh, with DevTools uh, over the next year or so. Um, beginning first with security and safety. Uh, if you look at what we've focused on uh, a lot over the last few years, uh, security features, uh, from encryption at rest for code commit to support for VPCs across all our services, so you can, you can have your entire pipeline within a VPC, uh, to support for secrets manager. All these things are uh, indicative of our focus on security and making sure that we provide you the most secure uh, development experience in AWS. Expect us to continue that. Uh, and one of the things I really want to help customers with is managing their software supply chain. How you manage and consume third-party software. Uh, inside of Amazon, we have an entire system for tracking the provenance uh, of all artifacts that we use inside of Amazon. Uh, so um, this, new, this uh, artifact provenance tracking system allows us to know uh, every package that's deployed inside of Amazon and where it's deployed to and where it came from. Uh, so I can look at a, a box and, and look at all the software that uh, is on that box and tell you where it all came from. Or the other way around, I can look at a third-party package, an open source package, and I can tell you everywhere at Amazon it's deployed, uh, which is super cool. But what I can then do is start blocking builds, uh, start blocking deployments, start ticketing teams when they uh, have uh, a package that has a critical CVE against it. Uh, so what we want to do is start helping customers do the same thing, um, is help, help, help them manage their dependencies and, and secure their dependencies and, and know what dependencies are being used uh, in, their, in their applications. Um, the other aspect here is, is, is uh, the availability and safety. I talked a lot about how Amazon applies policies to our pipelines. You can do this today a little bit with uh, config rules. You can set up a config rule for your pipeline. But customers have been asking us, can we make this easier? Can we have a built-in way uh, to achieve the same level of governance uh, and uh, apply policies to pipelines the way Amazon does. So uh, expect to see more from us there. Um, we're going to continue to invest in making it easier to develop these modern applications, both with the CDK by providing more constructs uh, and more capabilities there, uh, providing more capabilities within the IDE for, for building AWS applications, abstracting things higher and higher. Uh, I also want to make it easier for you to uh, set up personal testing environments to quickly spin up testing environments and tear them down. Uh, and then finally, uh, we wouldn't be Amazon if we weren't trying to automate things. 
so the same way we've been trying to automate the code review process and profiling, expect to see us do more here. We want to uh, apply ML, AI, automated reasoning, all these techniques to automate more and more of the tedious aspects of software development. Uh, what are the different things that we can do that make you more productive? Uh, I talked a little bit about it, how we were starting to use anomaly detection inside of Amazon to start catching things that testing wouldn't catch. Expect to see us do more here. And with that, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, thank you. Uh, please complete the, uh, the, uh, the survey and let us know how we did. I uh, appreciate your feedback. Uh, I will stick around and uh, open it up for questions, uh, but uh, you know, people are free to leave as well. But if you have questions, please stick around. I'll, I'll stay here and uh, answer questions for about 15 minutes.